You are listening to Prevention is the New Cure, all things health and NHS with a political twist. And that's with me, Dr Helen Stokes-Lampard and Steve Bryan, MP. Welcome along. Nice to see you, Helen. It's good to be here, Steve. Look, we're seeing each other in person. How novel is this? I know. It's like proper grown-ups. Nice nice pink shirt, Steve. Thank you very much. Uh, This is episode 22, and uh, we're going to introduce our guest a little bit later on, but today's the long-awaited dentistry and oral health special, so we'll introduce who we're going to come on and talk about that in a while. And I think we're going to spend quite a lot of time focusing on that, so I think we should keep our chat a bit shorter than usual. Yeah, let's do that. We try and have this podcast as long as a dog walk. That's yeah. what they tell me. It's a good, it's a good length of time. Yeah. Okay. Start with uh, industrial action. So obviously, last week we were talking about the doctors in training strike, but there's another one going on with them at the moment, right? Yeah. So Wales. Uh, so there's industrial junior doctors industrial action going on in Wales, oh. as we're recording on Tuesday. So it was the English junior doctors last time. But yeah, is that what? That's not what you're alluding to, is it? Well, that I'm glad we got that one on the record. But obviously, the consultants had mm-hmm. reached the agreement with the government, and then it was going out to BMA ballot. And the vote for that is up to the 23rd. What's that in my notes? The 23rd of January. Yeah. So uh, about once a quarter, I have quite a few of the presidents of the Royal Colleges mm. and uh, your successor at the Academy mm. was there yesterday when we met. Jeanette, Jeanette was there, yeah, wow. and uh, and a, a lot of the Royal Colleges were present. And um, I was asking them about the consultant ballot. Mm. And my sort of feeling was, well, you know, the government have reached a deal and this will go, this will go through. Um, the feedback that I'm getting, that I'm hearing from them and from others is that this is far from a done deal. And I wondered whether you were picking that up. So look, I'm a frontline general practitioner, so a lot of the people I mix with on a daily basis are not the people who will be voting in that ballot. I mean, I'm disappointed to hear that if that is the case, because I think all of us feel we want to put industrial action behind us because there's so much recovery work we need to do in the NHS at the moment. And but we want you know an agreement that everyone feels fulfilled and satisfied, sufficient to be able to move forward. Uh, so I am disappointed if that is the zeitgeist, but no, I'm not picking that up, Steve. And the 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 few consultants I've bumped into have been actually quite differently opposed but that may just reflect the people I'm working with well, bumping into at the university and academic I think the reason why it is what it is is because of course you have to be a member of the BMA to vote in their of ballot um, and many and, are not and many are not including those who are maybe you know feel, feel less uh, passionately about this are less radicalized maybe a bit older as you say they're not going to vote therefore the electorate if you like are those who are very passionate about this, very, very much on the picket lines when it came to the dispute earlier this uh, last year. And of course, you've got that younger cohort who feel that they are most disadvantaged by this pay deal. And who were junior doctors in 2016. Correct. So this is a big moment because if the consultants were to turn down that offer, yeah. then you could see that really encouraging. And we talked about the RCN and Pat Cullen, the Royal mm-hmm. College of Nursing last week, mm-hmm. last time we talked about JD so many times. This could be a real moment of, you know, stick or twist. Oh, that's quite depressing. I know, I know. Um, anyway, look, I'm, I, I'm actually sad to hear that. But in positive is, news. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we we, we try, we, we are fair to, to both parties here. And since right. we last talked, um, the Labour Party have produced their Child Health Action Plan, to create what they call the healthiest generation of children ever. And, you know, anybody who's on the prevention train is welcome along, right? Um, And, you know, some of the stuff that they're talking about, cutting the waiting list for children, 
ending the, the problems in child crisis in child mental health, transforming NHS dentistry, which we'll talk about a bit later on, cracking down on smoking, vaping, talk banning junk, it. banning junk food advertising to children. So finally following through with the, the watershed ban after 9 p.m. of foods that are high in fat, salt and sugar, which the government have, have kicked into long grass. Breakfast clubs for primary school, all oh, primary school children. Um, talking about the growth of infectious diseases and hopefully a vaccination strategy. This is good stuff. Now, there are questions about how they're going to pay for it. There are questions about what workforce would deliver all these 700,000 extra new dental appointments. But, you know, I did some media last week on the subject. And, you know, in terms of intent, um, yes. This is, I mean, this is good a stuff. A B plus. Oh, oh Steve. Well, I suppose, that, I suppose that's gracious. Uh, good. No, look, this is really, really good stuff. I don't think there's anything for anybody to argue in here. I mean, I'm sure there's some people in other parties who would say, we're already doing this or this isn't new or whatever. But I do think that it's really good to see it laid out so clearly. Novel to see seven points. It's not five or ten. Mm. And I have to say that's refreshing. I do sometimes feel things get shoehorned into certain numbers of bullet points. Um, I, actually, some of these things are just flipping overdue. I mean, the junk food advertising ban... Um, is overdue. I think protecting children from growth of infectious diseases, I'm, I'm sure there's loads of people in vaccine strategies already shouting at us saying, well, that's what we do. But if they're going to amplify it and make a big conscious effort, I, I think that would be very, very welcome. So making sure that the service we've got is more fit for purpose for the current time. Yeah, on the infectious diseases. So that it, it says here, reforming the service to allow health visitors to administer routine immunizations to vulnerable and at-risk children, ensuring more are protected from infectious good. diseases. That, that's good, right? It's great because these are the these are the children who are hardest to uh, for the current services to access because they're not brought along to routine appointments. They're not brought along to general practices. They're the ones who are. Yeah, they they become invisible to the service. So we, we've stopped using that phrase hard to reach. It's poorly served. Yeah. Uh, they are poorly served by our current service. And this is about improving the service. And so I, that is music to my ears. But I mean, they don't talk about actually a, a vaccination strategy, which is long overdue, long, long overdue. And the government have promised one and yeah. we need to see that. But I mean, at the, the end of the action plan here, it says a prevention first NHS. So they, they... Yeah. They've been listening, I'm Thank sure you. of it. I'm sure of it. Labour will shift the focus of the health system towards prevention with a goal to improve healthy life expectancy for all and halve the gap in healthy life expectancy between different regions of England within 10 years. So, you know, look... We, that, should, ask, we should invite them on to chat about it. Yes. That, Wes, you are welcome anytime. Um, Our I know podcast is your podcast. I know you're a man in demand, but look, uh, there are many things, as you say, that the government are doing. There are many things that... Um, it's difficult as to see where the workforce comes from or but but i i like the the ambition of this and there's actually quite a lot of detail in this and there's there are points that i hope will then make it into the labor manifesto so um yeah b plus very gracious of you steve i'll no, give no. them a, i'll give them an a for effort <laughs> okay very good let's move on right there are lots of things to talk about um but we're going to take a break and then we're going to introduce our guest which is going to take most of the time of this time's podcast <laughs> Welcome back. Prevention is the new cure, our little podcast talking all things health and NHS. And today we're talking all things dentistry and oral health. And we have a very good friend of mine, Helen, on uh, the podcast today, who I knew like you when I was the public health minister and a dental minister, who is Sarah Hurley, who was the former chief dental officer from NHS England until last year. And she joins us. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Hello. How nice to see you. 
Great to have you here on the podcast, Sarah. And um, we don't know each other very well, so I'm very much looking forward to the conversation to get to know you better. And clearly you and Steve go back a long way, as is often the way with our guests on the podcast, but so much to be talking about today. Yeah. And can I just say that for Helen and I are in the same room, uh, which as we were saying earlier, we're not always to record the Quite podcast. Um, so you can see us both, Sarah. And we were just talking before we came in, I've had a haircut. Um, which there is a Twitter feed now called Male Political Haircuts, which comments on men's haircuts in the House of Commons. It would never dare do it to the women, <laughs> but um, they have been commenting on my new haircut. And right. uh, Sarah was saying she's happy with it, but it needs something off the sides. Yeah, I mean, it's a very neat haircut, Steve, and I can I can approve. Thank I just, you. Um, I'm not sure I'd be so bold as to comment for yeah. yeah. I just think, you know, political sensitivities. Are we allowed to talk about one another's hair? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, okay. it's good. It's good. Sorry, your hair looks amazing. Thank yeah. you very much. Sorry, <laughs> your hair does look nice. Um, <laughs> but it's as, teeth today, Steve. As for your teeth, I can see your teeth, actually. <laughs> they look very nice, too. Um, Sarah, listen, we've talked lots of times about dentistry on the podcast, but only in passing. And we promise that we'll talk about it in great detail, which is why you are here. Now, my thesis, which I said on last week's podcast, and I said in the House of Commons last week when we had a big debate on NHS dentistry, is that... This is a bigger issue for ministers by far than the elective waiting list. Um, why do I say that? Partly because there's been some progress on the waiting list. And also, it's not 7 million people plus that's on the waiting list because it's 7 million procedures. If you ask every MP, do they have a mailbox full of people waiting for hips, knees, etc., then you wouldn't get every hand. If you ask every MP, do you have people in your inbox who can't get an NHS dentist, you'd get every single hand in the room go up. Is my thesis correct? It's a bigger problem for the government than the waiting list. I think it's a bigger problem, and it's not just um, something that's happened in the last year. It's not something that's just happened post-COVID. This has been uh, an issue for many, many years. And I, I sense that people don't understand the gravity. This is not just about teeth. This is about general health. You know that I used to talk about putting the mouth back in the body. We know that if you can improve oral health, you can improve the outcomes for a number of other diseases and conditions, but you can also help prevent a number of diseases and conditions and the evidence of things like diabetes. So yes, we need urgent action. And yes, it is a problem that has been brewing for some time. And we need to take it seriously. We really do need to grasp the nettle. All right. Well, let's establish the problem then first, because Helen was saying last week that this is a big problem in general practice. Yeah. So expand or unpack that, Helen. So look, so, so Sarah, as you know, I'm still a frontline general practitioner as well as all the other stuff I do. And I mean, a week doesn't go by when I haven't got patients in the consulting room who are, first of all, struggling to get routine NHS dental care. Um, even if they get it, then their dentists are saying, actually, but I can't treat these various complex problems that you've got. I'm either going to refer you into NHS for ENT maxillofacial surgery, um, because actually we don't do the complicated stuff anymore. We just can't afford to do it. Um, or they can't get any sort of access to it. And so they're dipping into savings to go privately or taking some pretty drastic measures, or they're begging us for emergency treatments and antibiotics, which we're not supposed to provide and do. We're not trained in these matters and it's a challenge, but I am heartbroken when I see young children ending up in a hospital for, you know, large scale dental extractions, um, which is, you know, as far as I'm concerned, is a completely preventable condition. So there's a whole panoply of things. And then the later challenges are people who are presenting with oral cancers. Um, and of course, you, you touched on this issue about general uh, 
you know, multi-patients with multiple morbidity where oral health is directly related to cardiovascular disease and a whole heap of other things. So I suspect that every GP or health, you know, community healthcare professional listening will really get this. And I think an awful lot of A&E healthcare professionals will be weeping into their coffee too, because it, it impacts on all. You know, we're all part of the NHS. And where do we go, Sarah? I think the first thing is that you will find that the dentists, the dental practice teams are also weeping. They're mm. part of the NHS, but perhaps not always necessarily recognised as such. And there, there has been a sense of the dental profession being siloed outside the system and the way oral health and dental services are commissioned has not necessarily helped that. And I think there has been a, a bit of a them and us the ability for a dental practice to refer to a GP or a GP to refer to a dental practice is not something that's supported by the current commissioning model. The, the There is no digital connectivity um, and the ability for a patient to navigate the system is quite horrendous. Yeah. So for all of the stakeholders in, in providing care and the very important stakeholder, the patient at the heart of it, the system is, it's like a maze. Yeah. And more importantly, the who does what, when and where also is complicated. And fundamentally, there is a cost to healthcare and there's a cost to prevention. And what is paid to a practice by the NHS in order to look after a patient often does not meet the basic overheads. So just like a GP who is a private business owner with a subcontract to the NHS, your capitation rate is, I think, about £100 a patient, give or take the Carhill formula. That doesn't exist for the dentist. So, you know, I, I might be registered with my GP. I might not see them for three years, but they still get £300. If I don't go and see a dentist, they don't get anything. There's no capitation there. So it's very difficult. I, uh, the dentist doesn't get any additional funding to do any of the prevention. They don't get a quaff or anything along those lines. So there's some real difficulties with the value that is placed upon oral health care and the remuneration that comes back to the practice and so forth. We've paid for, we've paid it for widgets um, and we've got a very different market there. So in the seven years, eight years I was CDO, I watched um, the different appetites of our dental practice teams move from a dental practice to in some cases, what is now much more cosmetic. We've got demands for alignment, bleaching and bonding. So there's a very different market out there that people can choose to provide care. So finding a practice which is offering the same amount of NHS access as it was pre-COVID or back in 2015, that has, that's been one issue. But the, the measurements of, uh, of care that the NHS uses in order to remunerate practices has also created a number of the issues. And, and Steve will know that there's, we've long been calling for contract reform. Um, you know, I, I, dentists would love to provide prevention, um, absolutely provide prevention, but it's not something that's paid for. So again, we've got some real issues in that. And I think the connectivity, it's the big one for me, is the connectivity between the different constituent parts of the NHS to help patients get to the right place at the right time. And, you know, you've touched upon urgent dental care. You know, A&E is not the right place to go for um, dental care. There are no dentists in A&E. Perhaps that could be one of the solutions. I don't know. Sorry, one clarification from me about the dental contract, and I'm going to hand over to Steve, because I know you and he, there's a lot of talking to be done about this. Um, my understanding was that the current 
dental contract was set up, you know, 17, 16, 17 years ago as a temporary or an interim step. And it was never intended to be a long-term contract. This is where the units of dental activity came from. Uh, and also this issue you're talking about, a lack of capitation and paying for widgets, does seem to be so out of date. Um, you know, general practice contract is so far from perfect, clearly, but it's got some really basic tenets that allow general practice to plan, to flourish, and to diversify its uh, work base uh, and staff. So um, it's not like you haven't got templates there that could be worked upon. Oh, Helen, music to my ears. So the original contract was 2006. Yeah. The Health Select Committee in 2009 already recognised that not only had the, 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 the new contract in 2006 reduced access, it also increased inequality. Um, I would say that certainly when I arrived in 2015, it was not fit for purpose. There were many say that it was never fit for purpose, which is what the Health Select Committee said in 2009. And then there was an endeavour to look at a new clinical model with a blend of activities, the blend of capitation. And for 10 years, that reform process ran. Um, I sense it could have been better overseen and um, evaluated, but you're right. I think they were chasing after something when they were ignoring templates that were already there. And I think there are a lot of lessons to be learned from the GP contract that could and should be brought into a different way of thinking about how we provide care. I'm a great believer in universal access to care, and I would hate to see dentistry and oral health now rationed. Um, that just, it appalls me. But actually, I sense in certain parts of the countries that's already happening. Okay, so on that then, when the dental minister, Neil O'Brien, who's a very thoughtful politician, yeah came before the select committee when we were doing our big dentistry inquiry, I asked him whether he still had the ambition that Blair had set out in his conference speech in 1999 that everyone who wants access to an NHS dentist should have one. And much to my surprise and the committee's surprise, he said, yes, absolutely. Um, now, I, as I said in the comments last week, I, I sort of laud the ambition, and I hear what you're saying, Sarah, but the fact is, is that it's cloud cuckoo land that everybody who wants access to NHS dentistry could have it at the, at, the, at the moment, isn't it? So when we talk about, you know, what complete access, what the minister then said to us, it's not deliverable, is it? So what the minister said is that those that need, not want, very different. You're talking about want. I mean, I I want to get my, my nails polished every week. You know, mm. if you're going to be talk about hair, we can talk about nails. You can get your nails yeah. done as well. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's about need. It's about responding to need. <laughs> and what he said, clearly said is those that need care should be able to access care. And what we have at the moment is a system that, because of the distribution of the access points in the surgeries, because of the way that we remunerate for checkups, because there is this constant belief that everybody should be having a six month checkup rather than risk based recall, much of the capacity and access that should be available to those in greatest need and with need is being diverted. We do an extraordinary amount of low value interventions, the numbers of six month checkups for people that are perfectly healthy of low risk means that Helen's 
fear about those that need to come more often because they are at risk of oral cancer, cannot get through the system, cannot get the appointment. And so I um, I applauded Minister O'Brien's uh, advocacy that we should be ensuring that we have a service available for those in need. Very, very different for want. Okay, and I no, think we need to be really clear because I do believe that £3.4 billion can and should buy sufficient services to meet the majority of those in need. But believe me, I would always be asking for more investment in oral health, in prevention, as well as access to services. Well, no, that's a good point. The need and want point is a point well made. Um, so when we produced our report, mm. the, B, the British Dental Association said it was, and I quote, an instruction manual to save NHS dentistry. You very kindly referred to the Health Select Committee of 1999, um, who've been flagging this as a problem. But why then? Are we? Why have successive governments basically failed to arrest this decline? Because if I tell you that when I was dental minister, I struggled to get interest from the Secretary of State and from Downing Street to dentistry. It's it, you know I've said this publicly before, and I, I say it again here now. It, I I always struggled to get engagement on this. This is a problem. It's coming down the track. And I always struggle to get that engagement. So why have successive governments, you know, Conservative government, Labour government, coalition government, why have they not arrested this access issue for those who need care? So I have, like you, struggled to get the attention of those that are um, empowered to make decisions. I think there is a fundamental lack of empathy with the dental patient. I think many of those that um, are fortunate enough to find themselves um, in the privileged position of making decisions themselves have probably never suffered from toothache. Um, they never understand what it's like to be, you know, losing three days off work uh, because you cannot lift your head from the pillow because of the pain. So I think there's that. Um, I would be so bold to say that I think there is a an institutionalised bias against dentistry and oral health. Certainly as a professional, I have faced... Um, a lack of respect for what we do, um, a lack of recognition of the value for what it adds. Um, and I'll be absolutely honest, in last week's debate, the humorous asides from various people at the dispatch box, I just thought some of the behaviours and the tones I wouldn't have heard if we'd been having a debate about childhood leukaemia. Um, I'd said that we do need to understand that this is a serious health problem and I don't think it's always taken. I, I sometimes feel that there's almost um, a music hall attitude to some of those um, that are looking after the finances. And I, I mean, I'll be absolutely honest, I looked in the back of Jeremy Hunt's book, Zero, checked to see if dentistry or oral health was in the index or the glossary for the longest serving Secretary of State for Health. He doesn't mention dentistry once in his book. Uh, Matt Hancock's book, I checked through the back of his book um, and obviously checked out all the WhatsApp messages that were produced. Does dentistry get mentioned even though it was a COVID issue? No, I just don't think it's taken seriously by politicians of all colours, with of course the pres present company accepted. Sarah, can I just sort of pick up on this? I think there's, there's something really important in what you're saying here, not just about politicians, but I think with the public as well. I mean, you're right. Any person who experiences oral pain, dental pain, 
flipping knows about it and it is you know one of those very high severe distressing uh, debilitating pains because it's yes. the, the acute uh, nature of it the confined space and therefore how you know the severity of it is, is quite unparalleled and you're right if people haven't experienced it um they they really don't know what they're talking about um and yet so many people have that actually there is a strong voice out there so many people's children have had dental extractions done in hospital there is something i think about um a, a real we we can get the public behind us on this and i think present company are all pretty passionate about this and yeah. um, and there are some very influential people and i'm mystified because steve we've talked before about this is such a massive issue for sort of backbench mps this is what fills their post bag and um, it complains about access to nhs dentistry so what does it take to get a groundswell how do, how do we change the narrative yeah and and I get yeah I guess that's a question for me and I'll and I'll turn it into a question for you Sarah in classic politician style. Um, yeah, good at this. <laughs> um, I, I guess what we need to we, we, there's no question that we've identified the problem. The successive committees have identified the problem. The House of Commons it's con it comes up at every Prime Minister's question time, but it is ultimately a question of money and it's a question of will. Now, you know, the Labour Party we talked about earlier have came out with their big um, health plans and their prevention plans last week. And there's some good stuff in there, right? Yeah, um, they're talking about 700,000 extra urgent dental appointments per year. So more children can see a dentist when they need them. Wow. Recruiting dentists to areas that need them. A targeted national supervised toothbrushing program uh, uh, in our fully funded breakfast clubs. Now, they're, you know, as I said in the comments, they're, they're perfectly laudable aims, but I don't know where the workforce comes for that. So I guess, can we nail the myth, if it, if it is a myth, Sarah, that what I said in the comments last week is that NHS dentists who've handed back their contracts, as mine did very recently, mm to earn the big bucks in private practice that that is a myth because they are not earning big bucks by doing it in private are they no i don't think they are i mean we're all looking for that work-life balance but more importantly we're looking for professional satisfaction in providing care to patients in a a safe environment with a good outcome for patients that you haven't got patients coming back time and time again because something hasn't gone quite right so what you want to be doing is to be able to have uh, handling a reasonable number of patients to be looking at their long term. And I'll use the word population health. You want to be looking after a group of people. You want to be able to do their lifelong oral health. You want to be able to provide a real wraparound service, but more importantly, engaged with all those other individuals. So, you know, the childhood arena there are individuals who have contact with children way before a dental team will do. So whether it be the health visitor, whether it be the, the postnatal nurse, whether it be the vaccination clinic, there are people already giving advice about food, about diet, um, about weight gain um, uh, in the right way for, for children and, and their development. So, you know, often I sometimes feel that the dental profession is there, dare I say it, picking up the pieces after all the other healthcare professionals have failed to, to provide the, the necessary prevention. So again, I don't think a co the prevention at this point needs to be anything other than everybody has, should have an interest in the patient's mouth, in a child's mouth. Baby teeth are everybody's business. And if we have that attitude rather than what I've often encountered from um, colleagues, sorry, we don't do the teeth. We'll do every other orifice of the body 
but they won't do the mouth. Uh, we've seen this in hospitals. Patients are admitted. They get the every other orifice looked at, but no one actually lifts the lip and looks inside the mouth and sees whether the patient's wearing dentures, whether they've had their teeth cleaned, whether they've even brought a toothbrush with, along with their pyjamas. You know, we've got a number of issues. In fact, I'll, I will stand fast. I'll give the anaesthetists a little bit of a shout out here because the anaesthetist is about the only other person that does look mm. in a patient's mouth right? ready for a general anaesthetic. So, mm. so Steve, I, I think the issue here is there are lots of laudable efforts, but uh, you can't just do a piece meal a little bit of this and hope that's going to solve the problem there is no silver bullet we need a multi-strand multi-agency buy-in to improving oral health and this is why i like the idea of the integrated care systems because i can say to an integrated care system invest 1.4 million here in for example children's oral health both prevention and access and i'm going to reduce your demand on your general anaesthetic waiting list and save you 2.4 million. So we we know that this, this is the case because we did this with Dental Check by One back in 2016 to 2019. We increased access by 23% for children under the age of two. We decreased children under the age of five, demand on GAs by 10%. We created a dividend. We, for every pound that was invested in this, this programme, there was a two pound dividend back to the system. And so my arguments now is with the integrated care systems, working with GPs, working with health visitors, working with the schools, working with the local trust, we can create a far more joined up approach. Now, if you can do it for children, why can't you do it at the other end of the age spectrum? So yeah. we could I, really be can doing I just say I love your I love the baby's teeth are everybody's business. Yeah. There's a book. There's a book in that. Sign her up. Um, so do, do Labour have a good point then on this supervised toothbrushing programme for three to five year olds? I mean, OK, you, it's got to be paid for. And, you know, the teaching profession will obviously have a view in the early years sector where my wife works, for instance. So but I mean, you must have talked about that when you achieved dental officer. What does supervised toothbrushing look like for that? So, age? Su supervised toothbrushing is already running in a number of schools and a number of early year settings. It is nothing new. There is a whole evidence base produced by our colleagues from Public Health England that was that showed what the return on investment was. So you bought the no toothbrushes, brainer. you bought the, 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 the toothpaste, you provided the support to um, the education or in many cases, the staff that were providing um, supervised play or staff that were involved in doing the, the breakfast clubs. It is not a difficult piece to do, certainly in schools where you've got access to sinks, you've got the, the water. Um, I saw a fabulous initiative in Leicester. So Jasmine Murphy and the mayor of Leicester in every children's early years setting, they had a little bus that was full of all the, the um, sort of plastic bus, full of all the toothbrushes. There was a little smear of toothpaste on a, on a paper plate and at 11 o'clock or after the um, uh, afternoon nap, children would be doing supervised toothbrushing. So supervised toothbrushing has a place in the whole armamentarium of what we could and should be doing. Um, but if you're only starting at age three, or in many cases, age five, it's all a little bit too late. Right. So you need to start earlier. And so early years settings should be, what can we do to support young families? What can we do to start that dental journey and do the dental check by one, which ran so effectively previously? Um, and actually, even if the child is just brought as a nine month year old or a 12 month year old, we can give advice on eruption dates. We can give advice on teething, how to reduce those sleepless nights. 
there are many things that could be done. So I, 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 I sense that we just need to think about all the different strands of activities. And yes, it will cost a little bit of money, but the return on investment is significant. And, and it's a rapid you, return on investment. It is. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that's that's the crazy thing with this one. This isn't a 10-year return on investment. This is within a few years, Steve. And I think this is the sort of stuff that surprises me why it's not being grabbed more and isn't the bigger public. I mean, Sarah, do you see that a sort of media campaign might be something that happens, you know, the sort of get, getting the, the daily papers involved? I mean, controversial, I know, but... Um... We, we absolutely try this. So when we were doing yeah. dental check by one last time round, we, we worked with the pharmacies. We worked with Colgate-Palmolive, Henry Schein, the corporate... We asked the supermarkets if they would do things at the end of the sort of gondola range, whether we could be able to promote it. The difficulty is that we're in a very competitive market where obviously shelf shelves cost money. Yeah. Um, producing leaflets and so forth was always quite expensive. So we ran a successful campaign, but it could have been so much bigger. Um, and yes, I sense that. I mean, we, we joined forces with the Royal College of Paediatric and Child Health. We yeah. worked with our health visitors, but it, it it sort of all sort of fell away. It all fell away. Yeah. Okay. Well, one question that we we had from one of our our listeners is that to uh, to, to ask you to touch on the food environment's effect on dental health, as in the 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 food environment that's out there, the food that we sell in those supermarkets we were just talking about. Can you say something about that to us? So again, um, our, our colleagues in public health England that was ran um, a great awareness on the types of foods. They advocated, as you know, for the reduction and the re of sugar, the reformulation in a number of foods. And I think, yes, we know that sugar, which is also um, an agent in, in the destruction of good health in so many different ways, has a major part to play in the experience of dental decay. Um, don't get me wrong. I like eating chocolate. It's when you eat. So it's about frequency as opposed to volume more than anything else. So we've got some we've got, you know. I'm not telling you anything that nobody that nobody hasn't already got an evidence base for. Um, this is good, sensible eating. It's good, healthy diets. Um, and, you know, sugar is our greatest enemy in this case, uh, as, as I said, it is for so many other bits and pieces. So, you know, to continue the advocacy for lowering sugar and more importantly, and COVID showed us this, people got back to the grazing habit. So if you are constantly snacking and you're constantly <laughs> bathing your teeth in sort of sugary acid, then you're going to have problems. Um, Helen's, Helen's looking. Helen's just giving me a look. Uh, I'm, I am a grazer. This is, this is true. Um, another question. Sorry to cut across you, but another question is just because I want to get, get it in. Um, can you ask uh, why my family and I can't get an energist dentist after our last practice went private? Just about every practice now doing so in Cornwall. Looks like D Dr. Gray has asked that question, right? So so we would hear this in every county and it's worse Ooh. in some than it is in others. Yeah. But uh, am I too grumpy? I'm never grumpy, actually. Really? Mm. Yeah, yeah okay. I am grumpy because I'm grumpy about New Year's greetings, but that's another story. He's grumpy about something every yeah. hour, but it, Grump, you know, anyway, my, my, grump, grumpy. my grumpy thing here is, is that even if the contract were changed tomorrow to be what we've talked about and, you know, it's focused on prevention, time with patients, if you put yourself in the shoes of my dentist who recently handed back her NHS contract, she's made quite an emotional leap to do that. Yeah. And I, I, my theory is that it would be incredibly hard for her to go back. And I think that will be the case for a lot of dentists. Am I, am I right in those who've taken that big decision, Sarah? 
So, you know, we are talking about individuals that have made significant investment in the bricks and mortar and their workforce um, to provide a business on the high street. And the business that was originally the NHS contract no longer makes business sense. It also, in many cases, the what they're being asked to do and how they're being asked to be remunerated for it doesn't actually make professional sense. So, yes, I absolutely agree. It would be difficult for many people to go back. So maybe there needs to be an alternative to this maybe there needs to be another offer for many practitioners will say i'd love to be doing nhs care but i cannot afford the overheads i cannot afford the the bureaucratic hassle i cannot deal with all the other things but if you were able to say here is a structure where i can get some salaried work to do the good dentistry i want to do with someone else managing all the hassle I'm not self-employed because at the moment, even the associates in practices are self-employed. So that creates a number of these. But could you offer me? So down in the Southwest, one of the things that the university have done there and a declaration of interest here, because I am part of the board of the social enterprise down there, you know, they are offering access opportunities in these structures, which are in effect owned by the social enterprise. And it means that any individual being able to work down there is literally going into work to do the really great clinical work they deliver down there without any of the hassles of running a business. And similarly, there are other uh, universities across the, the country who are also looking at how they can combine training with an offer. And again, another declaration of interest, you know, I'm working with the University of Suffolk, where we again have set up, um, you know, a, a site where an individual can come in and deliver dentistry as part of the team without all the hassle of running the practice, without all the hassle of responding to NHS England. So there are a lot of practitioners out there that really do want to be providing good quality care, publicly funded quality care. But actually, the issues of the bureaucracy and the diktats from NHS England, you know, counting up your widgets um, and dealing with the the underspend. So there is an alternative, and the alternative allows us to think about the salaried employment where someone else is looking after all the what I call the the bureaucracy of the delivery and the interaction with the integrated care systems who are now the commissioners of care. Do I want the ICSs to be commissioning more care? Yes, I do. Can we move away from the current restrictions of the, the what's called the GDS contract? Yes, we can. There's flexibility. There's flexibility even for those on the high street. But you're right, Steve. If you've made that decision for your own practice, it will be difficult to move back. But that doesn't stop you from then saying, well, is there an alternative where I and maybe other members of my team can go and deliver NHS care in partnership with the integrated care system? Sarah, I'm going to interject before I bring Steve in. I think we're probably going to have to finish. Yeah, we've got to finish. So a comment and a last question, Sarah. The comment, I think, is I refer you to the GP contract in terms of allowing flexibility to work in a salaried and a much more flexible way. I mean, I understand the dental contract allows for private work, which the, which the general practice contract does not. And I think that's because the general dental practice contract is unique in that regard in the NHS. Um, but that notwithstanding, there are a lot of good examples already out there in general practice. We're making it work very well. My own large practice, we've got 13 partners who would... Uh, and we have another 10 doctors who work in a salaried way, and we have um, a, lo- a regular locum, you know, and it works extremely well in terms of, of, of the choreograph and the ability to deliver care. Um, I guess my question is about any idea, I guess this is for either of you, um, are we going to see um, the 
the dental recovery plan sometime. We, you know, we've had so many other recovery plans for NHS England. Does anybody know? It's so long promised. And um, I, I, I just don't know when we're going to see it. We keep saying shortly. The minister kept saying, I hope shortly will become very shortly. Uh, <laughs> I, it's very overdue. Zara, you may talk to ministers, even though you're no longer CDO. Uh, when do you think we might see it? So first of all, I'm like you, extremely disappointed that the extraordinary amount of hard work, initiatives, options for doing things differently has not yet seen the light of day. It was twenty July 2022 when we last saw any real um, offer to both patients and the practices about doing things differently. There was a range of flexible initiatives that was submitted in but I sense that, again, um, the tussle between the Treasury, between NHS England Finance and between the Department of Health. I don't think you can point the finger at any one individual, but I do hope uh, Minister, the Right Honourable Andrea Leadsom and um, the Secretary of State will be able to drive this forward. It is needed because, as the Nuffield report said, if we don't do something soon, you know, the, the don't even convince yourself this is the thin end of the wedge. We've gone beyond the thin end of the wedge. But I do want to come back to Helen's point. You know, the model you just described for your GP practice, that is achievable now. There's a sufficient yeah. flexibility. If an integrated care system wishes to go down that route and create a contract and a tendering offer for practices, both new and old, that is an option for them to consider it would be easier all round if it became a direction of travel endorsed yeah. by the three agencies, the Treasury, NHS England, the Department of Health. Um, and I sense that should be and could be the way that we go in the future. Brilliant. Sarah, thank you so much. We record this on a Tuesday. It goes out on a Thursday. Guess where I'm going on Thursday? You're going to for the a dentist? dental for To the dentist. Yeah, but you're paying I privately. Um, yeah. Because my dentist has given up NHS work. It's the first time I've been for a long time. Uh, so I'm terribly fearful of what I'm going to see. But I'm going to the hygienist as well. Oh, no, this, this is great. This is great. But so my, my point here is, one, you shouldn't be afraid. And actually, remember, as I said before, the dentists are here. They, um, they're here to pick up where others have failed. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. a sad well, reflection. As long as, I, as long as I get a sticker... Can I'll I just be happy. Say, conflict of interest. I've got an appointment with my NHS dentist in a couple of weeks' time, and but it's been in the diary for guess what? Exactly six months Good because point. to stay on the NHS list regularly, we need to go every six months. So don't even start me. There's a whole I other am. podcast about registration, list recalls, and so forth. Yeah. And to be absolutely honest, I come back if we get away from the six month recall, three point four billion pounds buys a lot of dentistry. Yeah, and that's a good note to finish on. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Take care, Sarah. Bye. Oh, wasn't Sarah great? Thank she... you so much for making the introduction. Oh, no problem. I said she reminds me of you um, in that she is incredibly passionate and sparky and bubbly. And uh, yeah, she's full of enthusiasm for it. You wouldn't believe that she's no longer chief dental officer, would you? I know, she's still, still just aspired up. Yeah, just aspired up. Good. And you know, she was great fun when you used to meet her as a minister and uh, she was great fun before the select committee. And I guess what saddens me is that in all the years and all the roles I've had that I haven't got to know Sarah, which sort of tells you something about the gulf between medicine and dentistry, which is just wrong. As a GP, I know it's wrong. Um, I think that's something that I want to do more about in the future. Yeah, well, there you go. So there you go. And it reminded me, one thing we didn't pick up and talk about was about 
bone disease and osteoporosis and there's a big thing i think at some point in the future steve we should pick up on osteoporosis as part of our prevention conversations um yeah but but dentists and osteoporosis are an interesting combination so remind me let's pick that up in a future episode i will steve we yes. have to wrap up fairly soon but a little bird tells me that you have a big birthday looming i do have a big birthday looming yes it is the the half c not the big, the, the oh, half, the half, the half century. <laughs> oh, she's funny. Um, yes, on the 28th of January, it is the half century. Half century, but not out. No, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much. And yeah, available for podcasts. Um, so are you doing anything nice? I will be hanging out with some family. I don't have any parents left, sadly. Um, so I won't be hanging out with them. But, um, but they'll be my thoughts, obviously, at that sort of time. And. partner on uh, early on in that weekend and then on the weekend itself we're away um we're gonna go and uh we're gonna go and live in a house by the sea oh um, with the children and monty the dog who is already looking forward to it um and then all of my school friends are coming over for lunch on the sunday which is actually my birthday so Brilliant. that'll be nice i can't bear it i know people think we politicians just want a big show that's all about us and a party where we're in the middle on a pedestal i couldn't think of anything worse so you know low-key Loki, but I hope it's fab. I'm going to hand you a card now, which is sit to be a reverend, but you can save it for the day. Oh, that's very sweet of you. Thank um, you. We will pick up. You can give us the Monty update in the next episode. Yeah, no, he's looking birthday. forward to the birthday by the beach. When we went to the beach with his brother, Popcorn, who I don't think I've ever talked about. So, yes, well, his brother, uh, my first dog, is called Popcorn, who is a oh. yellow lab, um, and he'd had an eye on. Uh, just before my 40th and we went also to uh, to stay by the by the sea that day and he he wasn't allowed on the beach because of what they call sand blast which is when the the, the oh. sand hits the dog's eyes and so he was stuck inside the beach house oh, with sad. an eye patch on um he's never looked sadder um oh. so anyway i was telling monty about this the other day so he's going to be on best behavior to make sure his eyes are in tip-top condition ready for dad's birthday so prevention for your dog too yes well Yes, there's a whole new podcast on it. Let's not start. Let's <laughs> not, not start. Done. Right, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with episode 23. Thanks for listening. Podcast at stevebryan.com. Find us on all the usual social media channels. And thanks for listening. Please like our show. Thanks all. Bye. Bye.